We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Hey, it's History Through the Eyes of Faith. I'm Frank Grange Jr., your host, along with Angie Ferris, who brings the content. Hey, Angie, how are you doing this evening? Doing great. All right. We've also got producer Wes. Glad you're here, Angie. Sorry about that. We've got producer Wes here who's, uh, let me start this over. Hi, this is Frank Grange Jr., your host, along with producer Wes. No. Starting over now. Hey, it's History Through the Eyes of Faith with Angie Ferris. And I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Hey, Angie. Hey, Frank. And you know what? Let's keep all of that in just for fun. Okay. You're the one that edits and produces. No, <clears throat> Wes produces. I just give it a listen through so he doesn't have to labor over it too long. Guess what, Angie? What? Nines. Come on, nines. Come on, nines. Let's get in there, nines. Get to, get to. It's episode 99. Oh, Lee, 99. I would have not agreed to this. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> We're only going to do at least 100 episodes. <laughs> like, mm. no, but I'm glad. I'm glad we didn't really have that idea or format. I'm glad we just jumped into it. What, 2020? Yes, we started recording in the summer, late summer 2020. And released in April of 21. And in the original studio. Yeah. That was a neat little vibe in that studio. Remember we had a magic show in there? Yeah, we did. I I ran across those pictures the other day. That was, yes, that was a neat little vibe. That was a neat deal. It was coming up on two years ago that we did the magic show. I know. When when producer Wes said, hey, dad, here's an idea. You and Tad do a magic show for Baylor's birthday. He said that the week before the birthday. And we said, Okay. And if I remember, y'all were over at my house on the pool planning it. Yeah, that's when he gave me the idea. Yeah. Now, and we talked about it on the podcast because we did all that while we were recording the podcast. Like, we yeah, talked about the, the fact same that, time frame, that we yeah. made a stormtrooper yeah, come to life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think we posted some pictures Man. on the Instagram feed, I think. But let me say this about the podcast before you get into your fun little thing. Um, I was thinking about it, and I was like, I'm just, I just really appreciate you guys, and I'm really glad we're doing this. I'm glad that this is going to be out there, that somebody will have the opportunity to get an overlook of of history and all at once if they want to. Or you can take pieces, but just, I'm just so excited to have it out there and to have this perspective out there. You know what? I don't know. If, is there anything else like it? I, I don't know. I mean, there's pieces of it, like all the reference material that you pull in. Oh, for sure. 
But I don't know if anyone else has compiled it together in a timeline. Yeah, yeah, there there are huge books, but they all have different Ooh, huge books, different approaches, different things. I don't know if there's a podcast where you can hmm. audibly take it all in. But anyway, I'm excited about getting it all out there, and I'm excited about where we are in history and what we've got yet in front of us. And yeah, just putting the pieces together. And I think we're seeing, I don't know about you. Don't you, don't you think you see that frequently now in episodes, like how things fit together with things we've already talked yeah, about? Yeah, I do. I do. And even we talked about it in the last episode, just and maybe the one before that about just the combination of church and leadership and whether you call it government or state, whatever. And, and even in this episode that we're going to be talking about, um, the influence of the Christian faith in all of it. Yeah. Um, and we are talking Western civilization, so yes. I want to tell a quick thing okay. that happened to me last night. Okay. Uh, Rhonda and I, I said, let's go out to Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. I hear that they have maybe some neat little restaurants out there. Like it's turning into like a little bit of a vibe or something. Yeah. Little old historic downtown. Which dra- direction is that? It's uh, west of Columbia. Okay. Only 12 miles. Okay. So we went out there. I was, and we ate dinner at the Mount Pleasant Grill, mm. which used to be at one point, one side of it was an old pharmacy with the soda fountain with the stools and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if anybody listened to this podcast that, is frequent in Mount Pleasant and goes to that grill on occasion. Great. It was good. It was fine. It wasn't, you know, it was fine. A neat little place, but it was like the only thing open in downtown Mount Pleasant last night. And it was a nice night. We ate and we walked the couple of blocks of the whole downtown area. A ghost town. Like the buildings... Imagine you know, like old buildings built in the 30s, like a downtown 1930s mm-hmm. with the straight brick front and the little like the little bay windows in the stores yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and the tile floor. Mm-hmm. Classic architecture of that time. I would say 90% of all the buildings were empty. Yeah. Some of them were being refurbished to be something kind of new and neat. And one of them I actually snuck upstairs into one of them and walked around. It was an old dentist office. And I was just so surprised at how empty it was. And Rhonda and I were talking about how, what if you had so much money that you just bought the town of Mount Pleasant and made it a destination? Like those buildings were Airbnbs and you had a, you had a bar here. You had a nightclub over here. You had a rest, right. couple of restaurants. Yeah. You had little boutique shops. Yeah. Oh, like, you could turn it you could turn that whole town into a destination have music festivals have craft festivals i mean it's just it's just an empty canvas this whole town you know we were thinking about that we're driving back out of town thinking well we were hoping to see more and and one day it probably will be but i don't know what industry i don't know where the people are the grocery stores i don't know what the infrastructure is for the town right but we're leaving and we had passed a place called Ray's Diner. It was kind of like a gas. One side was like a market. Mm-hmm. And the other part was like a restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe it would look like at one point it was a place that sold fireworks. I mean, just to give you an idea of right. what you're looking at. Right. The parking lot was full of people in, in chairs and folding chairs in a circle. In the middle of that was a ring, like a boxing slash wrestling ring. And we said, oh, we're stopping for <laughs> just this. Like, just like this. Yeah. Oh, we're going in there. We pulled it around and parked. <laughs> and we saw some wrestling. <laughs> did you really? We did. We saw some good old boys in wrestling uniforms. Oh, my goodness. Big bellies hanging out. Going, y'all just a bunch of white trash. Like starting, oh, I can't even say everything that they said on this podcast. Getting the crowd going. Little boy, maybe Was it 12. a free thing or like had yeah, people it was paid free. for this? No, we walk up. Like we're going to have a wrestling show. People all around. One little boy decides he's going to be the antagonist from the crowd. He's yelling at the wrestler, shut up, shut up. Maybe giving him the finger on occasion. 12-year-old. I mean, it's getting, and so these guys that are like, they got a little sound system, P.O., like, y'all ready for some wrestling? And they play music, and a guy comes out, and he's like trying to get the crowd going. And it's, So you understand that obviously there's no script, and probably the production team isn't the sharpest production team. <laughs> And they're saying, all right, we're going to go out there, we're going to fight and yell at each other for a while, and then we're going to have the bad guy come out. And then we're, you know, you know that they've got, this is the plan, so we're just going to go out there and do it. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so we stayed for probably 20, 30 minutes. We got there just in time for the national anthem, <laughs> where two kids walked into the ring and held an American flag. And they played Whitney Houston's version of our Star Spangled Banner. Oh, my goodness. And then it was wrestling time. And the guys come out, and we, I've got, I showed Wes already some footage of the <clears throat> banging on each other and flipping and jumping. At one point, they put a guy in a grocery cart and pushed him around into things. And it was so bad, but also made it so good. Because it, like, do y'all... Who's producing this? And we drove away thinking, I need to be involved. We wanted to help. We were like, I feel like we need to help them. Because they've got 150 people here. This could have been so much better. And we left. They said, y'all, we're going to take about a 10-minute break. And Rhonda was like, from what? <laughs> she said, I should have yelled that out. To them. From what? Because people were yelling back and forth, you know. What are you taking a break? Do you think they from? get in their circle? They like circle up the chairs and it's a different show every week, or is it always wrestling, or is it just a once a year event? I have no. Or? I saw no banners. I saw no. I don't know. But people, there was a guy standing next to his truck with his like five year old son smoking a cigarette, yelling at the people. <laughs> I mean, it was. Oh and my I'll gosh. say this on the podcast. One of the antagonist wrestlers yelled at an African-American wrestler a racial slur. Oh, my goodness. Now, not the worst one you could think of, 
but something inappropriate. <laughs> well, if you're going to have a wrestling match in a parking lot with 150 people, I wouldn't expect I mean, appropriate to like, be on the where menu. Where are we? What's <laughs> happening? So now, fun. even in the video, so I'm leaning up, I'm standing, imagine a pickup truck and I'm on the driver's side of the bed looking over the bed filming with my phone and right the, and on the other side of the truck are people seated in the ring mm -hmm. and ron is like don't just lean up on some stranger's truck you don't know where you are we're in mount pleasant tennessee you can't lean on somebody's truck and i'm like it's fine while i'm recording this older man walks up to me and i'm like oh she's about to be right uh-huh and he goes all them people over there standing up i can't see nothing so i just decided i'm gonna climb up on top of my truck and he so this was his truck, and on my video, Here you see goes. this man climbing across the front <laughs> to get on the top of his cab to watch. It, oh my gosh, Frank. That whole time was only about 30 minutes or so, but it was like, what has happened? What a great story. And, and while you're telling the story, I was sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, I have totally blipped. We've got family stuff going on and I've totally blipped on what I've done since I saw you last and there's no time to talk about it now but it is an amazing story so I might have to save it for 100 okay, yeah speaking I have to save of it for 100 good, good segue into what we were going to talk about now yeah I showed Wes a little bit of that when I got here to the studio and it's ridiculous now but you're talking about episode 100. This is 99. 100, we're going to try to make it an event. We're going to try to make it exciting. Going to bring in guests. We're going to, there'll be a little bit of a break between now when you hear 99 to when you hear 100. It'll be sometime in the next couple of months in the summer of 2023. Um, it's not going to be too long. Like it won't be, probably won't be by August in late summer, but we, we're still making plans for that yeah. of when and where we will do it. Yeah. Um, and but, we won't be introducing necessarily new content, but it will be content related. Because of the history we've built up to this point, we'll be able to look back, make some. And I found some materials I want to introduce that are good summary statements, good like looking in the rear view of where we've been. So there'll be some of that, guests, fun, and some great stories. And I will have props to go with the great story. Okay. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I did take up the typical 10 to 12 minutes in the beginning, but I thought you wanted to hear about the wrestling yes, that I yes, saw. Yes, and night. I also want to take this opportunity to throw in there, too. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow it on whatever you're listening to because that helps push us up in the ratings and get more attention. We appreciate that. Um, and if you want to reach out and support us, which always helps, go to the Kofi site and buy us a cold brew chance for um, opportunity to express your appreciation but hit that like and subscribe button whatever it is wherever and share. you are share 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 it tell people share i told my boss at work um at work the the person that i report to about the podcast and i got i spent probably five ten minutes telling him about things that we do and what we talk about and um because he started with you got any plans for this weekend and oh and i said i told him about it before well, that's but cool. he's the kind of guy that was like, now, Frank, you're religious, right? I mean, he's not. He, he's yeah, not I've, a, I've shared it with several people recently. 
handed out some cards. People like had lunch with somebody today who's like, oh, I'm on episode 89. So that's kind of cool or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. But I think, I don't know. For me, I'm look. I'm going to, no, I've said this before. I need to do a better job of promoting and advertising. Yeah. And, and this summer, we'll be in a season to do that. I mean, we're, we're in a, we'll be having some conversations getting the word out up in our game. Who knows? You might actually be seeing our faces live on video at some point. Mm -hmm. Here we go. We're planning. Okay. We're ready. Okay, to, we're ready. Where? So we? Where do we end up after ninety eight? In universities. Right. We were talking about scholasticism, moving into the rise of universities. And you were saying the schools within the when the monasteries, the monks, weren't really drawing a diverse or a more eclectic group of students and professors. Yeah, it was primarily that they didn't, the ones in remote areas didn't have the opportunity to attract a lot of different teachers, but the ones in the cities did. So as the cities are growing, so these schoolmasters then were coming and the teachers were what kind of changed the scene. So, um, and here I think, okay, once again, let me say the three sources I'm using for this, the a book by Thomas Cahill called Mysteries of the Middle Ages a book by Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language, and then Rodney Stark's How the West Was Won. And I think this part right here is Thomas Cahill, but I can't wear that. So, a new day dawned with the coming of the great schoolmasters. We can trace the birth of universities to the magnetism of popular teachers whose skill and enthusiasm for learning attracted students wherever they happened to be. The liveliest figure in this early stage of intellectual revolution was Peter Abelard. He lived from 1079 to 1142, so a little bit previous to the 13th century. The eldest son of a minor noble of Brittany, which is northwestern France, Abelard, for love of learning, had given up his inheritance rights to younger brothers and roamed France to sit at the feet of the great masters, now listening, now openly challenging them in class. Who, was the, who were the great masters? Whoever they were at the time, the okay. people that are traveling around. There can be no doubt that Abelard was the best mind of his age. Not only that, he was exceptionally handsome and utterly self-possessed. He spoke and sang, for that matter, in, an, in a timbre. Why do you say that word? T-I-M-B-R-E. Timbre. Timbre. That few could match. And his ready wit, his ready wit was a sword. Even a student in Paris... Even as a student in Paris, he had publicly exposed the logical flaws in the propositions of one of his masters and by sheer force of argument, lured most of the master's students to his own unofficial lectures. Um, How do you say his last name? Abelard, A-B-E-L-A-R-D. He would write in his famous book, The prime source of wisdom has been defined as continuous and penetrating inquiry. The most brilliant of philosophers, Aristotle, encouraged his students to undertake this task with every ounce of their curiosity. For by doubting we come to inquire, and by inquiring we perceive the truth. And who, what is this book? I don't have the name of it right here. Great. But you can look up Peter, Peter Abelard, and he has quite the love story and the whole deal. This got Thomas Cahill goes into depth into all that, but not our point of focus, so I'm not bringing it to the table here. At the age of 25, Abelard set up his own left bank school, which is the left bank of Paris, of the river in Paris, Mont-Saint-Genevier, Mont which would soon provide the nucleus for the University of Paris. 
1113, when he was not yet 35, he was invited to teach at the prestigious Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris, where his sensational lectures were sold out, standing room only successes. No one, however, could stifle the growth of the seeds that he had scattered. Schools sprouted all around the continent. Fewer than 100 years after his death, which his death was 1142, so fewer than 100 years after that, Universities flourished at Paris, Orleans, and Montpellier in France, across the English Channel at Oxford and Cambridge, at Bologna and Padua in Italy. And we'll come back to the... How old was he when he died? Well, do the math. 79 to 42. 42 and 2163. Um, That's a pretty good life. Yeah, yeah. For that time. Mm-hmm. Uh... In le- let's see. Here we go. No one, however, already read that. Sorry, you got me off. Always get me off when you ask the date thing. I need to have a little sheet right here beside me where I've just got the date so I can refer back and it's I don't fine. have to change my notes. It's fine. Okay. The event that marked the flowering of the universities was the grouping of students and masters into guilds. Crafts- crafts- the guilds. Craftsmen <laughs> had been grouped into guilds earlier. Yep. And that was for the purpose of mutual interest and protection. And they, and as these teachers grouped into guilds, the teachers and the students, the students and the masters, they called themselves universitas, which was the medieval name for any corporate group. Okay. And then we're going to learn more about what that word university means a little bit I'm, further I've on. I've missed something or you're going to get to it. Peter Abelard. Yeah. He's in there because he's like the first great mind. That was stimulating this question and answer, this didactic, this back and forth answer questions. And it got people excited and stirred up. And then schools well, started forming in a lot of different places. In the last episode, though, we talked about the universities coming out of the cathedrals. In the last episode, we talked about the right. universities coming out of the cathedrals. Right. So there was the connection to faith. Yes. Are we still having that connection? Or yes, because Peter com- went to one of those schools. And started questioning and attracting people to himself. So he's kind of known for upping, upping the game of the masters who yeah, were teaching they, in these schools. Are they teaching about theology? Yeah, that's all that anybody talked about back then. Was Christian theology. Yes, because it was the essence of the discussion. The discussion was about... I don't tell me, I talk to me like I'm supposed to know that. I'm sorry. I'm the discussion the was that, where we came from last time. We mentioned two things. How human reasoning works together with God's revelation. That was the discussion that was happening in all those areas of, of arithmetic, grammar, uh, logic. What were the other ones? Astrology, astronomy, astronomy. Uh, you know, there was the seven liberal arts. I don't think astronomy was in there. It was. I thought it was science. No, science was not. Okay, pause. The seven liberal arts were grammar, rhetoric, logic, music, geometry, arithmetic, and astronomy. Okay. Grammar, rhetoric. Logic. Logic, reasoning, music, geometry, arithmetic, and astronomy. So, that was they, and they were discussing this coming together of human reason and it was all theological reflection. Okay. Peter Abelard brings the 
energy behind asking questions and doubting and discovering and what if this and what if that and that stirs and it this all, is all up. in Paris he was in Paris and so but you see schools popping up everywhere and you mentioned Oxford and Cambridge yes and Bologna and Padua in Italy and we'll come back to those and that that they then gathered together in a guild that was called Universitas guild and the guild is the students and the masters okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Upon hearing university, we tend to envision ivied halls and grassy quadrangles. Medieval universities, however, had not even the semblance of permanent quarters. They were just getting together. At first, lectures were given in wayside sheds at Oxford and Cambridge, in the cathedral cloisters in Paris, and in the squares in Italy. In time, teachers rented rooms. Students sat on the floor, which was usually covered with straw to protect against the dampness. Unencumbered, with athletic stadiums, libraries, or other equipment, universities could pick up and move elsewhere at any time if they found themselves at odds with local citizens. So they didn't have, they weren't tied to anything physical. It was this group of people. In addition to lectures, the method of teaching was the disputation. Two or more masters, and occasionally the students, debated text readings, employing Abelard's question and answer approach. So it's discussing these theological ideas. Scholasticism developed in this context and came to stand for painstaking arrival at logical conclusions through questioning, examining, and arranging details into a system of logic. The scholastic disputations stirred heated clashes and bitter feelings. Wars of logic ran for years between master and master, with adherents of each cheering their hero on with tumultuous stomping and whistling, much like what happens down in, what was the town? Mount Pleasant. Mount Pleasant. Something important was happening in in this raucous atmosphere. Students were learning to think. Unquestioning acceptance of traditional authorities was no longer assured. So... That's what's growing out of these cathedral schools or growing into masters who teach, which is growing into asking questions about whatever. Okay, now we're going to jump back over to Rodney Stark and his discussion of the rise of universities in how the West was won, okay? So some of this will be maybe a couple of details we've already covered, but from a different perspective. The most fundamental key to the rise of Western civilization, according to Rodney Stark, has been the dedication of so many of its brilliant minds to the pursuit of knowledge. Not to illumination, not to enlightenment, not to wisdom, but to knowledge. And the basis for this commitment to knowledge was the Christian commitment to theology. That's okay. his big subject. Make that connection. The basis for this commitment to knowledge was the Christian commitment to theology. The scholastics were fine scholars who founded Europe's great universities, formulated and taught the experimental method, and launched Western science. That's over a long period of time, what he's saying there. As for theology, it has little in common with most religious thinking, being a sophisticated, highly rational discipline that has its roots in Judaism and in Greek philosophy, but is fully developed only in Christianity. The pursuit of knowledge was inherent in theology, as efforts to more fully understand God were extended to include God's creation, thus inaugurating an academic enterprise known as natural philosophy, defined as the study of nature and of natural phenomena. So, it started... 
with efforts to more fully understand God, which naturally extended to include understanding God's creation, which inaugurated an academic enterprise known as natural philosophy, which was defined as a study of nature and natural phenomena. So it's an extension. If we're going to get to know God, we believe the earth is created by him so we can get to know him also by becoming understanding his creation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thus natural philosophy was tied to Christian theology. During medieval times, a long line of brilliant scholastic natural philosophers advanced Western knowledge in ways leading directly to the Copernican revolution, which is a few hundred years down the road. We're not there yet. And the extraordinary scientific achievements of the 16th and 17th centuries. So what Stark is saying is this is what is starting now as scholasticism moving to the development of universities is going to end up leading directly to the Copernican revolution and the scientific achievements of the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll see that when we get there. That is why there are no theologians. So uh, I shouldn't have this. That is why. Well, the idea that theology is the, is how to get to is the study of God and the study of his creation is why there are no theologians in the East in Eastern religions, those who might otherwise take up such an intellectual pursuit reject this first premise of theology, uh, that there is a God. Ex- okay. Consider Taoism, Taoism, that's how you say that, T-A-O-I-S-M. The Tao is conceived of as a supernatural essence, an underlying mystical force or principle governing life, but one that is impersonal, remote, lacking consciousness, and definitely not a being. It is the eternal way, the cosmic force that produces harmony and balance. So not a creator, not a being. According to the ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, the Tao is always non-existent, yet always existent, unnameable, and the name that can be named. Both soundless and formless and always without desire. One might meditate forever on such an essence, but it offers little to reason about. Flesh that out. Help me understand what you're saying. Okay, let me go on with a couple more examples and I'll come back. Buddha specifically denied the existence of a conscious God. Because Judeo-Christian thought is of a conscious God who is reasonable, then therefore we can reason about him. But if your it's not even a deity. If your essence, if, if what your worship is centered around is just a being or an essence, then reason is not part of it, which is, which is why reason becomes such a thing of the West, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he says the same applies to Buddhism and Confucian, Confucianism. Although the popular versions of these faiths are polytheistic and involved in an immense array of small gods, the pure forms of these faiths, as pursued by the intellectual elite, are godless and postulate only a vague divine essence. Buddha specifically denied the existence of a conscious God. But even the first premise of a conscious, all-powerful God is not enough to sustain theology. It is also necessary to think it is legitimate to apply human reasons to questions about God. You have to think it's legitimate to apply human reasons to questions about God. That is why there are no Muslim theologians. Just as Muslim clerics have rejected science as heretical because they believe that natural laws imply limits on Allah's Allah's, Allah's freedom to act, 
So, too, do they deny the legitimacy of relying on reason to expand their understanding of Allah. All that needs to be understood about Allah is written in the Quran. The proper role for Muslim thinkers is to interpret scripture that is to ensure that the people follow Allah's commands. In contrast, Christian theologians devoted centuries to reasoning about God's nature and about the very meaning of God's teachings. Even we see Jesus doing that, sitting there asking questions and answering questions. And there's a didactic going back and forth. But then think about like Augustine and his huge works, The City of God. Those are reasonings about God's nature. And remember how we talked about way back when, how Greek philosophy and Greek culture joined, came on the scene right before Christ did. Mm -hmm. And even look at the Gospel of John, which is written to a Greek audience, is full of all these questions and answers and ideas and back and forth. So, So over time, some theological interpretations have evolved dramatically. For example, although the Bible does not condemn astrology, and the story of the wise men following the star might even seem to suggest that it is valid, right? Have you ever thought about that? Mm Is the wise men finding the king? We followed his star, which is definitely astrology. In the 5th century... Astronomy. No, that's astrology. That's like reading the stars, not just like there's meaning in the stars. Okay. This one means there's a king at the end of this, and we're going to... It's astronomy put together with meaning. Okay. Got it. All right. So in the fifth century, St. Augustine reasoned that astrology is sinful because it, to believe that one's fate is predestined in the stars stands in opposition to God's gift of free will. That was his reasoning. The Bible doesn't say astrology is sinful. And like Stark says, it might, you might even think it's valid. So this is an example of why they're doing reasoning. No, it's an example of how far back the reasoning goes. Yeah, It goes all the way back to biblical times, but there's Augustine right there in the 5th century. And it's also an example of how it evolved, okay? There wasn't a teaching in the Bible that astrology was wrong, but through the reasoning in the 5th century that, well, if you practice astrology, that's sinful because to believe that one's fate is predestined in the stars stands in opposition to God's gift of free will, okay? Yeah, I get it. This was not a mere amplification of Scripture. It was an example of careful deductive reasoning leading to a new doctrine, and therefore the church prohibited astrology. Deductive reasoning leads to a new doctrine. Similarly, medieval Christian theologians deduced that previous doctrines that accommodated slavery were wrong, that slavery was, in fact, against divine law. We've already discussed that. So it was through reasoning that we came to see slavery is wrong. You could look at the Bible and say, well, they had slaves in Bible times. That must be all right. But you can reason through what it means that Jesus died on the cross for everybody and that all human life is equal and say slavery is wrong. Okay, that's another example. Um, As the distinguished historian Edward Grant noted, within Western Christianity in the late Middle Ages, almost all professional theologians were also natural philosophers. The structure of medieval university education also made it likely that most theologians had early in their careers actually taught natural philosophy. Okay, they're all together. In contrast, natural philosophy was highly controversial within Islam, something to be taught privately and quietly at some risk, and it was never taught by prominent Muslim religious thinkers. 
But in the West, Grant explained, natural philosophy could attract talented individuals who believed that they were free to present their opinions publicly on a host of problems that formed the basis of the discipline. It would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of the bond between theology and natural philosophy for the rise of Western civilization. As a result of this bond, the pursuit of knowledge about the natural world became central to the medieval university curriculum and led ultimately to the rise of Western science. Now, we're not going to have time in this episode to get into specific examples, but we will revisit those examples after episode 100. Okay. okay. The word university is Make a, a note sh- of that, Wes. We're going to revisit that after episode 100. The word university is shortened is a shortened version of the Latin universitas magistorum et scholarium, which can be translated as a community of teachers and scholars. Most of what became medieval universities have been schools imparting religious culture maintained by cathedrals and monasteries, many dating from the 6th century. The first universities were created specifically to go beyond such instruction. They were devoted to higher learning, to the active pursuit of knowledge. And he says the first university was founded in Bologna in northern Italy in about 1088, just after the Norman invasion of England and just before the First Crusade. Next came the University of Paris in about 1150, Oxford 1167, Valencia 1208, and Cambridge 1209. 24 others followed before the end of the 14th century. And at least 28 more opened during the following century, including one as far north as Sweden in 1477. What the tuition was back then. We're going to talk a little bit about that, not what the cost was, but how it came about. These new institutions distinguished themselves by not limiting their scholarly work to reciting the received wisdom, the wisdom already given. Instead, the scholastics who founded universities esteemed innovation. Of crucial importance, the great medieval universities were dominated by empiricism from the start. If it was possible to put an intellectual claim to observational tests, then that was what should be done. If there's a claim that can be proved by observation, then that's what should be done. That's the very basics of the scientific method, right? New thing. Despite slow transportation and limited means of communication, scholars moved from one university to another amazingly often. They could do so because language barriers were not a problem. The all instruction everywhere was in Latin. It all took place in Latin. Then as today, one gained fame and invitations to join other faculties by innovation. Even better was to have discovered something unknown to the classical world. If you discovered something that wasn't even known before the Middle Ages, before Rome fell, That's another step up. For all the dozens of universities that flourished in the Middle Ages, by far the most important, both as a model for the others and for the achievements of its faculty, was the University of Paris. We've already talked about a couple of its esteemed graduates. Peter Abelami. No, well, he was was not a graduate. He was one of the ones that his little school helped birth it. Helped birth it, yeah. But Stephen Langton went there. Oh, that's right. Innocent the Third. Him and Innocent Met the Third. Met Langton there. Yep. Okay. They were always so you can already blazing see that. up. This university quickly became the largest and most prestigious institution of higher learning in Europe, at least partly because of the attractions of the city itself. Even then, Paris had a reputation as a beautiful city, very large for the era, having a population of about 100,000 in 1200. What, the city? Yes. 
As the capital of France, it also featured a dazzling court and the excitement inherent in constant intrigues and affairs of both heart and state. The roster of University of Paris graduates and faculty stands as a glittering array of the most famous medieval intellectuals. Now, here's a description that comes back from Thomas Cahill's book of Paris, but I just thought it was really cool. He starts his chapter wanting to help us relate to universities by saying this. If you could walk the streets of Paris in the 13th century, you would encounter many familiar sights and sounds. The bustling city full of impressive architecture, lively commerce, and exotic wares, beggars and other casualties of urban life, self-regarding fashion, men on the make, and even gawking tourists would remind you of many a modern city. Though much smaller than any contemporary capital, the Paris of eight centuries ago was a noisy world of rough and splendid contrast. A maze of stage sets featuring comic and tragic scenes in alternation, such as only a great city can produce. But nowhere in this always colorful, colorful, often dirty, sometimes sweaty panorama would you feel more at home, more sure of who was who and what was what, than along the city's left bank, home to artists, writers, absent-minded professors, and unruly students. Indeed, the cultural nerve of the medieval Europe— the students, many thousands of them, constituted the largest population group on the left bank. So I'd like to go there. I've been to Paris, and there's things I've discovered since I was there that I want to go back and see because I think I missed them when Did I was Did you have there. the toast? Uh, probably not. They've got great French toast over there. Yes. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Many of these students came from far away, even as far as Scandinavia. Students were very young, most entering at age 14 or 15. Keep in mind that back then the world was run mostly by young men because life expectancy was rather short. <laughs> most students were of a social position intermediate between the highest and the very lowest, sons of knights and yeomen, merchant tradesmen, or thrifty artisans. The area surrounding the University of Paris came to be known as the Latin Quarter, a name that persists today. This was because students were encouraged to speak only in Latin, in and out of class. Nevertheless, few students had a real fluency in Latin. Um, such deficiencies in Latin were not usually a serious problem because most of the students at medieval universities departed after two years or less without acquiring a bachelor's degree. So, similar to now, dropout rate. Um, so, uh, Stark tells an interesting story about how the university came to have complete independence from local authorities. So this is a color, colorful story. Colorful. In March 1229, mm-hmm. at the start of the pre-Lenten car- carnival, which was much like a modern, modern Mardi Gras. A modern Mardi, Mardi Gras. Gras. Completed with mask and uninhibited behavior. Uh-oh. A group of University of Paris students became embroiled in a conflict with the tavern owner over their bill. A fight broke out. Other patrons supported the owner, and the students were beaten and thrown into the street. Uh oh. The next day, the students returned with reinforcements and clubs, broke into the tavern, beat the owner and patrons, smashed everything, and then rioted in the streets. City officials demanded punishment. University officials took shelter in the exemption of the church from local courts since the university was a religious institution. Okay. But Blanche of Castile, the mother of Louis IX, who was then serving as regent of France, demanded retribution. The university then allowed the city to take action against the students. 
Unfortunately, the city guardsmen picked out a group of students who had not taken part in the riot and even killed several of them. The university Uh went on strike. Faculty refused to teach, and all classes were canceled. Many students went home. Some went to other universities, including Paris, I mean, including Oxford and Cambridge. The strike caused a severe economic pinch in Paris. After two years, two years of the strike, Pope Gregory IX himself, a graduate of the university, issued a bull that guaranteed the institution total freedom from local authorities, including ecclesiastical leaders, by placing it under direct papal patronage and control. The university thus had the right to establish its own rules and statutes, as well as the exclusive right to punish violations. Wow. Even criminal cases brought against faculty and students could be heard only in an ecclesiastical, not a civil court. The Pope's bull became the university's charter, which in turn served as the model for other new universities. Mm, they're getting away with a lot of stuff. Yes, founded under the Pope. In addition to granting the ecclesiastical exemptions from civil authorities, the charter placed all power in the hands of the faculty. They decided whom to admit to their ranks and whom to dismiss. Summed up in two words, the university enjoyed virtually unlimited unlimited academic freedom. Summed up in two words? Academic freedom. Okay. Teaching was the primary faculty obligation. The great scholastic scholars held classes every day during the school year. They usually lectured to large groups of students, often dictated from books, because texts were so scarce and expensive in the days before the printing press. We're long before the printing press, so a lot was read and dictated. Everybody did. At least you didn't have the high price of books, right? Because you couldn't no, you buy didn't books. have no textbooks. The faculty also ran the university. They elected a rector or chancellor to administer in the institution, though in a reflection of the faculty's power, the Paris rector's term was limited to just three months so that nobody got too much power. As Haskins pointed out, as there were no endowments of importance, there were no trustees, nor was there any system of state control. Administration in the modern sense was strikingly absent. In, quite, in a quite remarkable degree, the university was self-governing. How then were universities funded? How were faculty paid? Entirely by student fees, often paid directly to a professor by those registering for his class. And non-payment was a problem. I'm sure it was. So, I said we wouldn't get to anybody, but we've made it to the first one. The first guy. The first guy that, that's part of the university? No. So what Stark does is he then gives examples of what was happening in these, the advancements that were made in leading toward modern science and in the foundations of Western civilization at these universities. So we're going to get into these and then we'll get to some next time. The first guy's name is Robert oh, Rose. G-R-O-S-S-E-T-E-S-T-E. Grossetteste. 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 So Robert. I'm going to call him Robert. Before we get back to Robert. Okay. Connect for me briefly. Faith. You're saying all the universities were talking about faith. The Christian faith. See, when I, I'm hearing logic, reason... Okay, what you have to realize, that what they were logically deducing was about God and who is God and how does that relate to what happens over here. And so if this is God's creation, how does this work? How does that work? All those questions were intimately tied to a belief in a creator. 
Okay. And that we could have a relationship with the creator and that he made us rational beings and wanted us to discover things. And so all of that comes from the roots of the church and the biblical canon. And, you know, Jesus says, consider the lilies of the of the field and the birds of the air and how they neither toil nor soul. And yet God loves you more than that. So he's using an example around you. It's all part of God's world. So in that sense, it's faith. We're so modern-minded and think that the church is over here and reason's over here and college is over here, mm-hmm. but it's all one thing. Okay. Okay. Does that help? It helps. It's just hard for my Western brain to, it is, to Well, get there. it's hard for your modern brain to see that. Yeah. Okay. But that's the point of history through the eyes of faith is to see the roots of our modern society in history and how that was affected by faith in the church. Okay. And I think it'll come out a little bit in these guys' stories as we talk about how they thought. Because, go ahead. No. Because their reasoning is around concepts of God. Does it make God. sense to start with just one and not just start with the guys after 100? Because No, I it's think not it's 100. A, we're, a, we're, we're looking at ones from... The Middle Ages, like these guys. I know, are, I know that. I'm talking about. Oh, you're talking about episode 100. I'm saying we're about to wrap up 99. It might make more sense, even though. Well, let me just throw one few. in here. I'll just throw the first one here, and I think it will. Oh. I think it'll show as an example. Okay. Use this one as an example. We're probably going to do a recap on this first guy. Well, if we need to, we can. So Robert. Yeah. Grossiteste. Eleven seventy. He's very upset right now about eleven seventy five to twelve fifty three. Pretty long life. Mm-hmm. A Norman raised in England, Robert attended Oxford, studied and taught at the University of Paris from 1208 to 1213, returned to become Chancellor of Oxford, and then became Bishop of Lincoln. So went into bishopric, the largest diocese in England, which included Oxford. Robert was a remarkable polymath who made important contributions to optics, physics, and tides. He refuted Aristotle's theory of the rainbow being the first to realize that rainbows evolve refracted light. He also pursued astronomy, being careful to distinguish it from astrology, as many of his contemporaries did not. But perhaps his most important contribution involved what has come to be called the scientific method. One of these contributions was what he called the principle of resolution and composition, which involved reasoning from the particular case to the general and then back again. For example, by looking at a particular case, one can formulate a universal law about nature and then apply this law to make predictions about all the other relevant cases, such as by formulating a law about eclipses of the moon and then testing that law by applying it to eclipses of the sun. Now, all that was a lot of scientific stuff, but mm-hmm. I know a lot of people will pick up on that. Those are the basics of the scientific method, and he's the one who came first credited with this. And he's pronounced gross test. Gross test. Note, the emphasis on observation as the basis of all science. Gross test's commitment to empiricism was such that he introduced the notion of the controlled scientific experiment to Western thought. The fundamental principle is that, as one historian of science summarized, When one controls his observations by eliminating any other possible cause of the effect, he may arrive at an experimental universal of provisional truth. So there's an example of a step forward that was made coming out of these schools. And then you could do, and that might be something you want to bring to 100 just for a little deal, is some information on Grosteste 
Gross test. Gross test about his faith. Because I have found when you look into these guys, you discover things. And they have quotes. Well, yeah. I'm going to show you that he was a pretty good looking dude. I mean. <laughs> That's definitely a medieval portrait, isn't it? Look at that. He's a handsome man. Okay. So we'll bring him back there. <laughs> Gross test. So that is something. That's a good challenge for me because I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back and find out some things about them that will tell us about where they are in their view of Christianity. Okay. Here's, here's a better. Here's a better picture of gross. Frank test. and his phone. Here's a better picture of gross test. Mm, medieval art. But look. Zoom in on it. What. What? These eyes are crossed. Oh, are they? That probably means something too. But there's a there's another image, and I don't know what this painting is from, but it's a little bit more majestic. Oh wow! It kind of looks like Zeus. That doesn't this. look like him. That looks. I must say that looks like some Greek god. That didn't look anything like those other pictures. Is that supposed to be him? Well, there's all different depictions of him. Here he is in stained glass. Okay. You know, he's... That's cool. Um, okay, I look forward to doing some more on that. But anyway... Gross test. It's a... We haven't spent a lot of time on the development of science. I think we mentioned it way back in there. But, um, yeah, we'll be doing more of that. Just as a side note, this is one of the first times in a long time that my neck is hurting from looking at you. Oh, that is weird. I'm sorry to make your neck hurt. I just got to reposition... Myself. Yeah, a lot of times you turn a little bit more, so that wouldn't help. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. Um, I want to tell a couple little things real quick. Can I do Please. that? Yep. You reminiscing about your visit to, tell me the name again. Your the town, town last night? Uh-huh. Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Mount Pleasant. We went to Dixon, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. That's not far apart. And had a fantastic time. So if you want to venture a little further restaurants, shops. I mean, we were there for most of a weekend and absolutely loved it. Oh yeah. I there mean, was lots of great places to eat. We had we had we were there for our anniversary weekend. We we're staying oh, in that's that. right. And you we went were, to that place. Yes, but that's for later because I got stuff to bring on that. So don't bring it up. Don't give it away where I went. Let me tell y'all where she went. Don't give it away. I'm gonna bring it I'm up for one hundred. Right anyway, and maybe Tim will be with me for one hundred too. So Anyway, we were staying at Montgomery Bell State Park just outside of Dixon. We would go in. The dinner we had on the night of Did our... you stay in the van? No. <laughs> well, State Park. Yeah. No, it was a great lodge. It was really nice. I've seen I mean, the it lodge was in out the there hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very nice hotel. Um, but the dinner we had was, I think, one of the best dinners we've ever had outside of when we were in Europe. I mean, it was what? amazing fresh food. I mean, it was just awesome. Awesome. I've heard good things about downtown Dixon. It was Dixon. not inexpensive. You know what they have out in Dixon that I've heard a lot about? But keep telling it. I'll tell No, I'm just kidding. You go ahead because I'm looking up something real quick. Well, one of the things that Dixon's really known for the last 15, 20 years is the meth. They've got some good meth. <laughs> There's some really cute boutiques. That was a lot of fun. There was a great bookstore, a couple of great sh coffee shops. This place is called Lugo's. You know, I think I might have been there. And they, you can see the kitchen. Like, the kitchen, like you know if you go in a restaurant and the bar's in the back and you can see the bar and you can see them behind the bar? That's the way the kitchen was. 
So you could see the kitchen. I might have eaten. And I ate in a little train station thing or something. No, down there. this is this is like in a on the downtown in the downtown yeah, which area. Is where I ate. But it was a regular building, yeah. and you go in there and just there wasn't. They have famous Hollywood actresses like from the twenties and thirties. Is it white 30s. tablecloth? Yes, I've eaten there. It was so good. Yeah, we had. We each, I can't even remember what we ordered now. Tim could remember. There's been a lot go by since then. But it was really good. Yeah. So I want to tell you that. Then also wanted to tell you another little story. Because what was it you were talking about? Let me tell them where you went? No. Okay. You were talking about in the previous episode. Or you talking about pronouncing things. Or something reminded me of this story about talking to our devices. I can't remember what reminded oh, me. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was saying... Um, you said the Magna Charta, Charta, uh-huh. Charta. That was it. Yes. Charter. Yes. So we have Alexa devices at our house. I'm sorry, y'all, if that just set everybody's off. We have echoes. Okay. I'll say that. I'll quit saying her name so it won't make everybody. If anybody happens to be around one, she'll start talking to you. Alexa. <laughs> anyway, so we have um, different ones in different rooms. Like we have like three, four. Okay. So I was just bored one day and discovered that you can give each one its own voice. Like when you set. It's, oh, wow. It's like if you have a Google system, there's just one voice. You can set a voice. But I'm, if you, I'm anti-Google right but now. But if you have the Amazon system, then you can give each one its own voice. I've got several. So actors. I made the one in the kitchen that we use the most, an Indian woman. And so we're having so much fun putting stuff on our shopping list and listening to carrots and all the stuff that she says is really funny. And then <laughs> and the one on the sun porch is an Australian man. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of fun. Well, Tim then has one in his office. And so he said he found out that I did this. And so he changed his to an Australian woman. So Tim likes to listen to playlists on uh, Pandora. So do I. Okay. So they do a good job. So he he will always be telling her to play something on Pandora. Mm-hmm. So he in my house, I will so say his hey. favorite. So he listened to all these different stuff. So is White Heart a Christian band? Is that right? Yeah, it used to be. Yeah. OK, so he asked to play. He asked her to play White Heart Radio and then she started playing Yacht Rock Radio. And so he asked her again and he gets so frustrated. She plays. Yacht Rock Radio. So he said, well, maybe I have to use accent. So he used his best Australian accident, accent and said, white, how do you say heart? White hot. White hot radio. And she played it. <laughs> really? Yes. That didn't make any sense. <laughs> Isn't that just That's so funny. funny? Well, when you change it to one hey, of Alexa, these. Alexa, play white hot radio on Pandora. White hot. He said hot. White hot. 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 Yeah, that's it. White hot. Like white hat. Yeah. White hot radio. So what's funny is when you change it over, it'll tell you like it may it may change its accuracy or something like that. Like it may affect its effectiveness. When you change the voice over. When you change the voice to something that you're not actually speaking. So he you have to speak like that. Do person. you have uh <laughs> have you played with the announce the the announcing on the app? On the app? So I so, so you can go in the app and then have it announced in a room or yeah. announced in the house. You know, no, I haven't done that so yet. So what you do is you you type your message. Uh-huh. And, and then it and reads then it. it. So, it'll, so so what I do is like when Baylor is in uh my bathroom, 
getting ready in the morning uh-huh. and I need him to hurry up and uh-huh. he's playing music through the Alexa. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll have so much fun <laughs> laying in the bed. And it'll go, it'll go, boom, from Frank. Hey, hurry up. Oh, it won't be my voice. It'll be like, boom, from Frank. Hey, hurry up. You know, but I'll spell out things what I want her to say because sometimes she won't say exactly what I want. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I start laughing so hard, getting her to say stuff. He'll be done, and uh-huh. I'll still be having her say stuff in there. You know, the other thing, yeah, and it really announces like, to all of them. So yeah, you need to be playing with that at your house because so, when he's in his office, yeah, we can it'll just be say, like boom from Angie, and it will say something in her voice. Yeah. Okay, I need to do that. I need to do that. Also, have you ever noticed? Does your car read your text to you? Mm-mm. Okay, my car does. My car, if I'm plugged into my phone, that's how my car works. Everything that I can plug into my phone and then the... Is this the Range Rover or the Mercedes? Oh, it it's the Jaguar. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> as the, the GPS and everything. Okay, so if you get a text message while you're driving, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll pop up that you got a text message and you hit play aloud. Okay, and so then it'll, it'll read the message. But... If people send you emojis, it goes praying hands, praying hands, extreme laughing no, it face. Doesn't. It does. Praying hands, praying hands. You gotta do it. Next time you're in the car, you need to text me when you're with me and listen to her read it. She and even I have a friend who is dark skinned, and so it says dark skinned praying hands. It even tells you what, So how does like I haven't looked you, at the you, text. Is your phone plugged in or is it your car? What's yeah, it's it, I haven't android phone so it's it's a software program called android auto that is in the car so when i plug it in the car just does all my phone stuff like i haven't looked at your text that you sent me while i was driving here but i'm guessing you did this you did that emoji yeah because she said okay emoji okay emoji that's what she read to me (laughs) it should have been dark skin okay emoji dark skin okay emoji i don't know why that it seems like the skin color only comes up with the praying hands I don't know what that's about. Well, I've enjoyed episode 99. Oh, my goodness. Episode 99. I'm sure we got to quit carrying on about how many episodes we got, but it is pretty shocking. We can, but whatever. So 100's coming, folks. Let us hear from you, folks. You know, like, subscribe, follow, buy us a Colbert, whatever. Like, I want to know you're out there. I met a friend in Florida who listens to, well, listens to the podcast regularly like she wasn't anyway she's a friend of my daughter's but she listens regularly and she's like i was saying something she's like i know i should respond i should like i should do something i'm like yeah she's probably listening to this it's right so much now. easier hey, not friend. to it is easier not like one to, of the most but, popular podcasts in the world that i listen to faithfully i've never liked or commented well, you can follow. Do you follow and subscribe so you know when a new episode no, comes out? No, I don't. You should do that. Y'all well, should all I do, do that. I do follow and I do subscribe. There's, there's only like six podcasts or so that I subscribe to, and I see when new episodes come out, by the way. Yeah. All right. Well, Folks, looking forward to appreciate 100. all your help, all your work, all your listening, and yes. we will talk to you at the 100. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Ko-fi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.